0: Chapter Hebrews chapter 12. We are still studying when grace runs out because we know that there is a time when uh, God has extended his grace and it reaches a point that he says this is enough. This is enough. And we're exploring what the Bible says about when that is. Now of course he is omniscient. He sees the end from the beginning. He knows everything that we have thought are thinking now or ever will think. That's who he is. That's omniscience. Omniscience can't not know. Don't you love those double negatives? I'll put a triple one in there if, you're, if you don't watch out. He can't not know everything there is to know. That's who he is. So he knows it all. He knows whenever it's time, whenever it's ready. We heard a little trumpet just before class. Uh, not the last trumpet, obviously, or we wouldn't be here. So I'm, um, I'm looking forward to hearing that trumpet one of these days, as I, I know you are too. We have been exploring the point that judgment is due all sin. Wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is salvation in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, it's really just a very simple thing to accept Christ as your Savior. It's a reasonable thing. To do that, some people think it's blind faith, but faith is all about the object. And I really, if I'm looking for someone to save me eternally, I want somebody that's conquered sin and death. And there's only one that's ever done that. To be worthy of Him, what it says in being worthy of Him, we would have had to have lived a perfect life, just like He did, to be worthy of Him. And none of us have ever done that. We are all, we've all sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. That's who we are as human beings. But his grace reached through time and space. The God God became flesh and dwelt among us. The God who became flesh as Jesus took our sins and bore them in his body on the cross. What an amazing substitution that that was. We have uh, been studying him because that's what this book is about. That's what life is about, is studying the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when does His grace run out? We're going to talk about that a little bit. and Hebrews chapter 12 is going to talk to us about discipline, and it's going to talk to us about what we need to persevere in the faith. So before we begin, let's just take a few moments for prayer. Uh, anybody's listening uh, has not accepted Christ as their Savior? Now, there's no better time than today. No better time than today than to just go in front, go to the Father, and let Him know that you accept the work of His Son on the cross. And that's where your faith is. That's where your trust is for your eternity. No magic words, no magic bullet, nothing you have to do because He did it all quite clearly. So it is clearly a matter of faith. So no time like the present. Next thing to do is to get ready to study the Word of God. Present ourselves in front of the throne of grace as believers. We still goof up, but if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's what we want to see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for your test. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the fact that your plan included him taking our place on a cross to pay a debt we could not pay. What an amazing, amazing picture that is. And that by walking away from a tomb, he proved that he had conquered death. Father, he is indeed a worthy object of our faith. Now may we not just start that way, may we finish that way. As we have received him, so we are to walk in him by grace and through faith. Father, today let us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask it all in his name, amen. Well, we have been uh, looking at discipline, All, all, all sin is due judgment. That's just the way it works. We've looked at discipline in the sense of punitive. We've also looked at discipline in the sense of self-discipline. And that's needed to win the race of life. Now, we received discipline from our Heavenly Father. We're going to see that in just a minute. So we can keep the straight line. We can stay on course. Because, uh, it, as you know, if you get very far off course and cover any distance, you can miss it by a long way. We were in Boy Scouts, and we were learning how to do all this um, orienteering and compassing. and We went down to Lawton one time, and and we had set up camp, and we'd pitched the, the camp, and we'd spent a good night there, and, and a guy in a military uniform showed up the next morning and said, you know, really, guys, you need to move your camp because you're on the artillery range of Fort Sill. <laughs> Somewhere, our orientary got off a little bit, (laughs) to say the least. So we learned the importance of staying true to the course, because if you get off just a little bit, even on a five-mile trek, you can miss it by a long way. Now... In Hebrews chapter 12. After Hebrews 11. Everybody should know Hebrews 11. With all the heroes. With the heroes of the faith. Just a representative group. And it tells you right there. We don't have time here. There's not the place to list them all. So the writer of Hebrews says. Just learn from these guys. Noah. Learn from Abraham. Learn from these guys. And then. In Hebrews chapter 12. This is where it starts off. And I. uh, I. We see here an encouragement to persevere in the faith. In Hebrews 12, now these, the CT is a corrected translation. That's to try and make it a little more literal and plain from the original Greek language. And it starts off, therefore. And of course we ask if you see a therefore, what's it Therefore. So you have to find out and figure it out. Therefore is because of what I, what he just wrote in Hebrews 11. This great cloud of witnesses. We have this great cloud of witnesses and part of that in context is the heroes of chapter 11. So he says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set in front of us. This is an exhortation. It's an exhortation to run the race. Let us also is, a, is actually something that occurs in the Greek. And um, we have no real good way to translate it into the English language. In the Greek language, there's a first person and a third person command. In English, we just have second person, which is you do it. But the Greek has a first person, let us. I, let me, or us do it. And it has a third person called a jussive, which is let them do it. Let him or let them do it. And there's the only way we can translate it is with a let it happen. But that does not carry on the full impact of the imperative that it is. It is a structural imperative in the Greek language, and we don't have any counterpart. And it says, let us. Okay, that's a command. Lay aside every encumbrance. Now, you know if you're going to run a race, there's some things you don't want to run it in. You don't want to run it with a 110-pound pack unless you're military infantry and it's part of your training exercises and part of what you have to do. You don't want to run that. If you're running a race, like the Olympics are coming up shortly, as everybody knows, and and um, I don't plan to watch them for several reasons, but the, the Olympics... That it's, it's amazing that laying aside every encumbrance, when those runners run and they are in a race, they don't have a lot of extra on. They will pay hundreds of dollars more for a pair of shoes that weighs two ounces less than what they have. Their clothing is as lightweight as you can possibly get it. Lay aside every encumbrance. They're not running with weights around their feet. They're not doing it. They may have trained that way. But if you're ready for the race, it says, Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. This sin nature that we have, we still have it. Whenever we are born with it, it came from the sin of Adam, passed on to every member of the human race, except the Lord. That's why he was born of a virgin. But we have the, the Lord himself, and we have this sin nature. And it says it entangles us, makes us want to trip. Now, I don't know if you've got your sin nature totally under control, but if I said I had mine under control, I'd be lying, and it would prove that I didn't have it under control. So, it is a fight, a constant battle between the flesh and the spirit, and it says it'll easily trip us up. You get put on the spot. Somebody asks you about something, you get put on the spot, and you just lie with impunity. You know, I know nobody in here has ever done that, but you get put on the spot. Well, would you can, can you come help? Well, I'm i i I've got uh, plans already that night. Okay, instead of just saying no, I can't. <laughs> I mean, that's the sin that so easily entangles us. We so easily lie to cover ourselves. It says, "Let us run with endurance the race set in front of us." See, a race requires endurance. And Christian life, interestingly enough, is like a 50-yard dash that's 26 miles long. It's a marathon. Run it as fast as you can as you can run it. But you have to train for it. Training for it requires self-discipline. In verse 2, this is how to win. You want know, to win this thing? There is this, this athletic... Metaphor, illustration being used to describe the Christian life. And the writer of Hebrews gives us a beautiful chapter here in 17 verses, part of a chapter. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. It literally says fixing our eyes into Jesus. Now think a second about that. Why would it use that preposition? There are prepositions for on, this is ice for into. Fixing our eyes into Jesus. That means look at him from the inside out. And if you look at him from the inside out, you find in Philippians, the second chapter, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself. And he took on the form of a bondservant. The word morphe for form means the outward expression of what's really inside. So he didn't just look like it. He was. He was God, fully From the inside out. And that's a beautiful word. Only used twice. Using that context. To describe the Lord himself. Look into Jesus. He is perfect. From the inside out. No sin of Adam imputed to him. No sin nature. No sin whatsoever found in his mouth. The author and perfecter. The finisher of the faith. What does that mean? It means that he's the one that lived it. He's the one that set the example. He is the end result. He is who the faith is all about. Because fixing our eyes into Jesus is fixing our eyes into the object of the faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He left heaven for us. Now think about that. He left heaven and took on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. He looked like one of us walking around on planet earth whenever he was here. But for the joy set in front of him, what was his future going to be? See, as God, he knew exactly what it was going to be. And he knew it was going to be something unlike it was before. And like it was before, He was seated on the throne. He created the heavens and the earth. He brought all things into being, both visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, powers, He brought it all into being. That's who He is. And He said, it's going to be better. The joy set in front of Him endured the cross. Thinking lightly of the shame. Now when we read the gospel accounts and the accounts of the cross... Where did the shame come from? The shame came from his own countrymen. The same ones that yelled, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Within a week said, crucify him. The same ones that were offered Barabbas instead of him. Or him said, give us Barabbas. The shame of being stripped naked, hung on a cross. And people walking by spitting on him. After the soldiers that had their way with him. Scourging him. Which if you knew anything about the scourge. And if you dared to watch the passion of the Christ. That was the best rendering of it uh, that's ever been done I believe. Because it literally what that did was tear chunks out of his skin. That's what, that's what those were about. Many people didn't survive that. Much less the cross. And so, it says, thinking lightly of the shame. That wasn't important. That wasn't what was driving him. There was no ego involved when he went to the cross. None at all. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In verse 3, it says, for consider him. This is how you persevere. How do you persevere in the middle of persecution? In the middle of tribulation? In the middle of, of... All the bad stuff that you can think of coming your way. How do you do it? And it says, consider Him. So when you find yourself in a rough situation, being the object of persecution, the object of pressure, whatever it is, consider Him. Who endured such hostility by sinners against Himself. Can you imagine anybody that's endured that type of hostility? said, no deceit was found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. Peter writes that. And here is his disciples that had abandoned him. His countrymen had abandoned him. He'd been betrayed by one of his closest associates, Judas. He he was put on the cross, and that was a shameful thing. It was the most shameful thing that could happen to any individual in the ancient world, was to be put on a cross and put on display like he was. And he says, think about what he endured, because we know it's for us. Why? So that you might not or may not grow weary. And literally it says, and your souls faint. This isn't just a physical fainting he's talking about. This is something that goes on in the soul, where the decisions are made, the analysis are made, wherever we, we take the, whatever, vocabulary that we might have and we're able to analyze whatever we can put together and we make decisions on there that, that direct our lives in that way. What choice did you make? It wasn't about your environment. It was about your choices. It always has been all the way back to the Garden of Eden. If it was about environment, then they would, then Adam and Eve wouldn't have fallen. It was perfect environment. But what happened? They, they did. So, But what happens with us at times? Things can get so bad, and the real issue is, is your soul going to stay together? Is your soul going to stay fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Fixing your eyes on Him? When you face all these battles, then that's what it's calling us to do. When you face the battles, you look to Him, and then you say, what did He go through for me? And then, compare with what you're going through with what He went through, and the answer is, we're not going through very much, folks. No matter what it is. If you find yourself in a persecuted nation. In a persecuted country. And you get drugged before the, uh, the various authorities that are there. Thrown into their prisons and all that. It still does not match with what happened to him on the cross. Because he who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf. That we could become the righteousness of God through him. That's what happened to him on the cross. And we cannot even imagine a pain like that. It is not within our wheelhouse. I know of having fought with pain and you guys fighting with pain. And you always go to the doctor. What is it on a scale of 1 to 10? You know what I'm talking about with that. On a scale of 1 to 10. If you'd asked Jesus on the cross the scale wouldn't have been big enough. It would not have been. How could, you, how could you even measure a soul pain? Not just a physical pain. Physical pain was a 10. And nobody argued with that. But think about what was happening in the soul. He knew no sin was made to be sin. So that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. Now the enemy is sin. That's verse 4. That's verse 4. See, because if you want to win, you got to decide you want to win. Nobody ever went out and won the Olympics without deciding they wanted to win it. It didn't happen because they wouldn't have trained for it. They wouldn't have gotten ready. They wouldn't have put themselves through the through the pain. No pain, no gain. They wouldn't have. What about a weightlifter? Some people are kind of naturally strong, but the ones that pick up four, five, six hundred pounds, those guys trained for it. Because you don't walk over and do that. Can, can you imagine if you haven't trained for it and you, wa- you walk over to a barbell and it's 300 pounds and you go like that? i tell you what happens. It pulls both arms out of socket is what it happens. Because it don't move if you haven't worked your way up to doing that. But he says you've not resisted yet to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. That's an interesting comment. What is the sin? Now sometimes, of course, the sin inside our body, the sin nature and the personal sins we do, we don't have to shed blood over that. But the writer is saying, see how important this is because we should be fighting sin in the world. And he said, here's the first century Jewish Christians that he's writing to and he's writing, you know, primarily uh, to, uh, well, to Jews there in the first century. And what did they do with their sins? They embraced them. Did they not? Because they found out that if they offered up the right sacrifice and prayed the, paid the priest the right amount of money, then they were forgiven for their sins. Because they thought the blood of bulls and goats literally took away their sins. And they didn't take away their sins. So they did not resist to the point of saying that, that hey, let's, we need to stop sin when evil is happening. When evil is happening, we need to be willing to stop it and fight against it if we need to. And he said, you not resisted to that point at all. You've not even gotten close to doing battle with it. The, and what is sin? Sin means miss the mark. Amart is the Greek word. It means to miss the mark. Like you're shooting at a target with a bow and an arrow. And you got the ten ring right there in the middle of it. And you draw back and you miss the whole target. Well, that's a sin, obviously. That's one of the big ones. What if you hit the nine ring? You still missed. <laughs> it's still sin. The consequences may be different for different sins. But it's all still sin. And so he says, you've not yet resisted. Now what do people try to do with sin in our culture and in our world? You have to go back to the basics. Who has the authority to say what is sin and what is not? And that's the Almighty God. What do human legislatures do when they try to legislate it away? They try to play the role of God. They're saying we know better than God. They call God old hat. They call the Old Testament too old and therefore irrelevant. They call the Bible uh, also too old and irrelevant. And they say it has no value in today's society. That's because it's been relegated to no value. It still has infinite value in today's society. So they try to take human legislation... To do away with divine legislation. Now how long is God going to put up with it? Have they ever tried this before? Didn't Jesus talk to the Pharisees and he says. You, you nicely set aside. What God has written. To follow your tradition of the elders. It's the same thing. Different form. Same function that went awry. They stopped following God to start following the, their own laws that they'd written. And right now, people are doing away with sin. Somehow, it's uh, in, in some places, according to some district attorneys that we have floating around this country right now, then, uh, well, uh, certain, certain uh, crimes are no longer crimes. Go in and loot a train. Seemed like they were doing that in the 1800s until they put some guys named Pinkerton and stuff like that onto the trains to stop Jesse James and people like that from robbing the trains. About the only difference now is they're not moving. They're going to loot them instead of going after the the moving trains that they once did. But what happens when people get caught doing things that they shouldn't be doing? A lot of times they are back out on the streets before the officer shift is done, there's a problem with that. Because if there is no fear of punishment, crime becomes the norm of the day. And that's not the way it should be. Trying to let human legislation overrule divine legis- legislation. Now, verse 5 says, Have you forgotten? Now, this tells us it's already been revealed. Because a writer of Hebrews says, Have you forgotten? Uh, forgotten is eclanthano, it's the only place that this word is used, and it, it looks at a, to, to totally escape notice, it's an interesting word that usually looks at a willful choice to forget, it's the only use of this word in the New Testament. So have you forgotten, and the word selection indicates that it was a willful decision to forget what had already been written. The exhortation, Paraclasis, the calling alongside Solomon wrote, which is addressed, dialego, to you as sons. And it says, my son, do not regard lightly. Now, this is a weak negative with a command. So it says, if you're doing it, stop it. It is the word oligareo, which is only used once, meaning to regard it as little or unimportant, to despise it. The discipline, the paideia, which is a word that means to train children uh, through instruction, through correction. And it looks at the entire learning process. Uh, Paiduo is is quite an instructional thing, and it's more than just uh, book learning. It is, is the whole experience learning that goes along with it. The discipline of the Lord, nor faint, lose your breath, when you are reproved by Him. Now, reproved is the word of legco, and the word reproved means to expose. When you're exposed by Him. So, He says, okay, kids, when you get found out, you know, if you you remember maybe a time when you were called in by mom or dad or something like that, and they already know knew what you did. Okay, and then they ask you, "What went on at school today?" Hmm. Do I tell them or do I not? Well, it becomes a learning experience, right? If they already know. Um, you know, I don't need to tell you all the things that I got called into the office for as a kid. One of one of them, though, said I was the son of a bricklayer and I used some bad words inappropriately in the classroom. Me and 10 or 12 other guys. So we had a whole parade of us go down there to the classroom. And our parents knew about it before we got home. Um, and I used the excuse, well, Dad uses that word. It, that didn't work either. So, uh, have you forgotten it or reproved? Now, the, the writer pulls the importance of Proverbs into the letter. This is out of the book of Proverbs. You find a lot of this in Proverbs 3. And it's designed, to, Proverbs is designed to teach us things we should not forget. So, it view is a word of encouragement and a warning. Against viewing what the Lord has in store for us, Lightly, to see no value in it, to just blow it off. An important part of training is spiritual exercise. Spiritual training requires spiritual exercise because, spirit, because Scripture is God breathed, and one of the things that is necessary for is this training. All Scripture is God breathed, and it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Training in righteousness, so the person of God might be mature and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now some characteristics of this training are found in verse 6. Because training is a function of love. He says, for those whom the Lord loves, he trains. And he disciplines every son whom he receives. Now, as we know, sometimes kids are just hard-headed. And sometimes the discipline needs to be stronger. Uh, One of the proverbs that's often uh, taken, I think, misunderstood, train up a child according to his way, um, is basically a recognition of the, the personality of the child. Because some children, you can just wear out their bottoms and will not get through other kids you can sit in a corner and they're going to be wilt. And they're going to listen. And it says know your kid well enough to know what's going to work and what's not going to work. That's what that passage is, is about. Whom he loves he trains. And he disciplines every son whom he receives. That training is a function of love. Training teaches endurance. It says... It is for training that you endure. So you undergo the training and you endure the training and you continue to keep trying to do things to do things right. He says, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not train? Now, can you think of one of the more unruly sons in the history of the world? I might put David up there on the pedestal. Uh, He was a man after God's own heart, but he had a lot to learn. Did he not? Did he undergo training? He did. The Lord loved him. The Lord taught him. But David made some big mistakes. Big mistakes. Great victories, but big mistakes along the way. So the father trains them. What kind of son? Is there whom the father does not trade? Well, really, that's a bad father. Doesn't train their sons. And what did it say about David in the first part of 1 Kings? He didn't train his sons. He didn't train his sons, did he? It was something that he should have done and did not do. So it's here talking about a, a loving father. The loving father is the one who's going to train their sons. But David, with all his kids, didn't train them. And it was a mistake. And it came back. You can see it in Absalom and some of the other ones. Now, <clears throat> training shows our relationship to God. Training shows our relationship to God. It says, if you're without training, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Now, even people that don't know what's, what's going on, God trains them. And they turn their back on God, and he still trains them. And he brings pressure in just the right way, just the right time, just the right intensity to get their attention. And some people still, because of this thing called free will or volition, still say no. Still say no. And what happens when believers do that over a period of time? See, God is gracious to us all, all of us goofballs out here. But if we keep turning our back on him, grace eventually runs out. That's what has happened throughout the course of history. He says, verse 9, training is what leads us in this road to life. In 12.9 it says, furthermore we had earthly fathers to train us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? The writer of Hebrews evidently had a father who trained him. He saw it and he saw it done fairly well. And he says, we respected them. Some of the interesting things is sometimes if if parents don't train their children and then they find a teacher or teachers that do expect excellence from them, a lot of times they have more respect for their teachers and connect to them. We had some, I don't know about you guys, we had some characters for teachers. We had one that was uh, uh, on Iwo Jima whenever that uh, World War II with the US Marine Corps and he was there and, and uh, you talk about strict, he was also the baseball coach and the junior high football coach and he would come out with a one-to-two board to football practice. Because the line are supposed to keep their rear ends down, their heads up. And if they got their heads down, their rear ends up, guess what got whacked? Now that would probably put you in jail right now for doing such things as that. But there was a respect. I've mentioned my sixth grade teacher before, Mr. Alexander. Went under the name of Alexander the Great. He was a professional wrestler at one time. And he was a character. And he trained us. What did he do? We had great respect for him. Because he said, you see my hands here? Everybody, yes. He said, I count on my hands like this. One, two, three, four. And he said, if I start doing that, then that means every one of you are going to be in your seat by the time I get to ten or you get a swat. You know how long it took him to train us to get in our seats? Because he did give the swats, and it got to—he he started off going one, two, and everybody went, "Oh no!" And then it got to the point that he just sat up there and go, he wouldn't say anything, <laughs> and everybody go, "He's counting, he's counting," and I mean there was a scurry of little mice headed to their seats. But he trained us, and we had respect for him because he had rules. He had rules, and he said, we're going to follow them. we're here to learn, and that's what we're here for. Had a history teacher that said we had to write a paper, term paper for every one of his history classes, and he was the only guy that taught it. And you had to have the paper uh, structurally perfect before you'd even read it and look at it. He taught us how to do footnotes, He taught us how to... If you typed it, no typos, and no whiteout. Nothing. You couldn't redo it. You just typed the whole page again. That's what you had to do. And you had to turn it in perfectly, or he wouldn't even look at it. He'd hand it back to you. Say, fix it first. If you did it by hand, the same type of thing. So he taught us. And that carried with us, carried with me, and I'm sure others too, all the way through college and all the way through life, where you had to write things and you wanted them done correctly, and you had some idea of what correct was. So that's what uh, that's what we were taught. Did we respect them? Absolutely, we did. And so that's how we should be. That's how we should be as as teachers, as parents. And he says, <clears throat> Shouldn't we be more subject to the Father's spirits and live, God himself? This training that God has laid down is designed to teach us how to walk this road of life. The word righteous, interestingly enough, its root meaning is straight. Our road of life is supposed to be a straight road of life. It's called walking the straight and narrow, if you ever wondered where that came from. It came from dikaios, the word that basically means straight. And it says, that's verse 9. It says, For they trained us for a short time as seemed best to them. Now, training is for our spiritual prophet. And notice what the writer of Hebrews just recognized. As seemed best to them. He's saying that our earthly fathers were far from perfect. And being a uh, father and grandfather, now I'd look back and i go... You know, I made some goofs with my kids. I've apologized to them uh, for the goofs. And it's one of those things, you do the best you can where you are at that time. And you really try, if you're a godly person, you're trying to do it in a godly way. But sometimes it doesn't come out that way. We're not supposed to discipline out of anger, but sometimes anger leads the way. And that's just the way... That's the way things happen. But it says they trained us for a short time as seemed best to them. But He trains us for our profit. That's why God trains us. Why? That we may share His holiness. See, in a society we live in today, holiness is not a virtue anymore. It is not a virtue. It's amazing the things that. We held sacred at one time, when back when we were growing up, there were some things that that you just flat didn't do. And uh, stomping on the flag or setting it on fire was one of them. But what was viewed as sacred, the things of God, are viewed as sacred. You don't go into a church and tear it up, burn it down, or anything else. It's not the way to do it. It's, that's, to, that's to relegate it to uselessness or common. It is supposed to be sacred. It's that we can share His holiness, not somebody else's, not our own, His. And that's why He teaches us. So He wants us to love, but He wants us to love in righteousness and truth. As well. Those things go with that. Because love by itself will be too easy. And justice by itself will be too harsh. But he had the perfect blend. And that's what he wants to see in us. It says all training for the moment. In verse 11. Seems not to be joyful. But sorrowful. True. You know like. Whenever you're getting a switch across the back end, things like there's certain things that just don't seem to be joyful. We, uh, I, I know uh, football, etc., things like that. Now, the, the, the football coach did put the board back up, but he still had the stands to make us run in the gym. And part of it was our normal calisthenics. But then if you messed up, And got out of line or got in a fight or something like that. You got a whole bunch of extra laps up and down the stairs of the gym. That's what you did. And that was no fun. At the end of football practice every day. I I don't like to run distance. Never have. I love competition. I love football, basketball, baseball. I did not like distance running of any distance whatsoever. And we would practice football. And and uh, get started after the practice is over, usually a couple of hours, and the coach would say two laps and in, full pads, half a mile. Now, for people that run, they just don't even get their muscles warmed up for a half mile. That's just, you know, they run cross country and that's just what they do. That was the longest half a mile in my life at times. I had to run a mile in under six minutes to get a suit my senior year for the football team. And uh, my first first time around was 6.12. So I had to run it again. And I ran it again the next day and I got a 5.56 or something like that. (laughs) And the only thing that made me go faster so I wouldn't have to run it again (laughs) to get a suit. So that was just the way... That was the way it is. But there were standards that were set. You had to meet the standards in in order to, to join in. All training seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been exercised by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. A lot of us have been through some turmoil and loss of friends and family and things like that in our lives. We've been through it. We know how rough it is. We know how difficult it can be. And yet, part of why God comforts us during that is so we can comfort others. Because we're able to come alongside somebody and say, I've been there. I know what you're going through. Know what you feel. This is how I dealt with it, maybe. And this is part of what God trains us for. is so we can be ministers, and serve others. But while we're going through that training, it is anything but fun. But it is indeed useful. I was down ministering to uh, the first responders and the, at the uh, Murrah building down there in 1995. And tough stuff to do, but it was... How, how do you help somebody who's running into... Situations that they've never ever before seen in their life. Especially if you haven't. And what you do is walk in by grace through faith. And ask the Lord to use you. And that's what he does. And what it does is prepare you to minister to people in difficult situations like that. Because we'll all have those from time to time. And it's a good idea to, to whenever you're in that. Don't get obliterated by it. Embrace it. And say, Lord, what are you going to teach me here? Because you can bet it's part of the training. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. I've heard it say that some people train uh, to get things right. And others train so they'll never get it wrong. And guess which ones are in the Olympics? They're the ones that are training... Doing things over and over again. Until they don't get it wrong. That's what they're out to do. The applications. Therefore lift up the hands that are hanging down. The knees that are feeble. That sound familiar? Sounds like a battle going on. A guy by the name of Moses. Had his hands up in the air. And as long as he had his hands up in the air. Guess what? They were winning the battle. But he got tired didn't he? He got That's the picture we've got here. He got tired... And his hands fell down. And what happened? The Jews started losing the battle. So what did Joshua and Caleb do? Picked up his hands. And held his hands. That's what this is about. Lift up the hands that are hanging down. And the knees that are feeble. That's what we're called to do. And people are just worn out by what is going on. And the battle is wearing on. And they're about to lose it. Go be a part of it. Be a part of it. Lift up the hands that are weak. That need to call out to the Lord and are calling out to the Lord. And they're about to get worn out. Lift them up. And the knees that are feeble. That's some of the applications. Verse 13 is seek healing. Which says to make straight paths for your feet. So that the limb which is lame may not be out of joint. But rather be cured. Rather be healed. Make straight paths for your feet. So you want to get, what is righteousness? Straight. What do we do? Wandering around out here, off the straight line. How do we make straight paths for our feet? We get back on a straight line. We go right back to the the straight and narrow is laid out by the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes people want to keep, they've got a lifestyle that has messed up their life. And they want to know how they can keep their lifestyle and get their life straightened out. Uh, Guess what? (laughs) It's not going to work. You have to get back on the straight line. And it's not going to be easy. But they say it takes three weeks to establish a habit and three weeks to break it. So you at least give them kind of a... I I heard that phrase light at the end of the tunnel, but... uh, I also heard it said, just be hope it's not a train coming your way at the end of the tr- tunnel. But that, that light at the end, of it, give them some kind of idea that, hey, you need to do this for three weeks to get it started and see if it'll work. You need to change your diet. Just do it three weeks. Just do it three weeks, see if it helps any. Do it six, it'd be better. If you need to change your diet, change your diet and decide you're not going to do it for the rest of your life. You're going to do it for a short period of time. And then whenever you do that, you've accomplished that, reset the goal. And the next thing you know, you've got a habit and you got a lifestyle. So if your life is wandering around out here in the tulips somewhere, you get it out of the tulips, back on the straight road, and you keep going down the straight road doing what? Fixing your eyes on Jesus. What do runners do? They look at the finish line. When they make that final turn and they're coming toward the finish line, the, 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 un- unless you're uh, Bowles or somebody like that that's just faster than lightning, and he can look around at all the people behind him, runners don't do that. Especially in a 100-yard dash, they have their eyes on the finish line. And that's what we're supposed to do. Pursue peace with all men. See, this is part of the applications of the discipline. What are how are we supposed to use them? What are we supposed to use them for? Get ourselves fixed. Right? We become servants of others, lift up other people's hands as they're failing. Look for healing for ourselves so we can run better in this this race. Verse 14 Evangelize other people. Tell them about it, pursue peace. With all men. Okay, that means we don't want to be the ones that's trying to stir stuff up that it don't need to be stirred up. Pursue peace with all men, but look at this last part and the sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. Sanctification means to be made holy, and it starts with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Belief, that's the sanctification. If you don't have that, you're not going to see the Lord. I guess you might see Him at the great white throne, but that's not the place to see him. It's a little too late, because the grace is ran out then. And then verse 15, another application. Here's your life, focus on grace. Focus on grace. Verse 15, it's a verse that... Uh, and I have done this. I feel like I'm flying through this chapter today. And most of you have been around know that uh, two or three verses is about it. And here, we're going to hit 17 verses today, so you can put that on the calendar. Okay, Drew hit 17 verses today on Sunday, Sunday lesson. But <clears throat> having gone through these verses in great detail several times before, Sing to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Now I've run into a lot of people that said that some of the things I've done God's yeah, I'm beyond God's reach, I'm beyond God's grace. He won't forgive me for some of the things that I have done, and they don't understand that yes he will. There will be a time grace will run out, but if you're talking to me about your problems right now, it's not run out. It is not run out. It will be another time in the future if you don't if you don't make the right decisions. He says that no growing root of bitterness. I like that. It's like my holly bush outside of my house continues to grow. A bitterness may affect a crowd. That's literally what the Greek words are saying. And by it many be defiled. Something could happen to us early on as a kid or something like that. And we get mad and we get bitter. And this bitterness can affect a whole lot of people. It can affect our future family. It can spread out and affect a lot of people. And it calls us, as members of the church, part of the royal family. We share the priesthood with Christ of of Melchizedek. We share that. And he says, here you are. And what are you supposed to do? What is your ministry? Focus on grace. Talk to people about grace. Because it will affect a lot of people. The root of bitterness is, is just that. It's a root. There's a lot of different branches that comes out of roots of various things, and they're very hard to get out and they're difficult to get out. But it's a that's what is called bitterness. Sometimes people are just mad at the world. You may have known people that their whole life they're mad at the world. Everything is wrong with everybody except them. You know, what is it about me and thee and I'm not sure about thee. Everybody's messed up about me and thee, but and he says as an example, deal with immorality and godlessness, that there be no immoral or profane person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Can you imagine that? Had a daddy by the name of Isaac. Isaac was very wealthy. And what did he sell for a single meal? His birthright. To who? Jacob. Was he tricked out of it? Yeah. Why was he willing to do that? Why was he willing to sell it? It meant so little to him. Now, see, that is part of what happens with Christians, they become saved and satisfied. They feel like they know they're saved. They know that they have complied. They know they have done that. And they said, I've done enough. I've done enough. I'm going to be happy with whatever rewards God has in store for me forevermore. Therefore, I'm going to go do my own thing. And I'll see an eternity, God. They might not say that out loud, thinking that that would be bad, which it would be. But that might be the, the thought that drives them and gets them through this life. But look what Esau did. And look how many people may be doing the same thing right now. They're selling their birthright for momentary gratification. No immoral or profane person like Esau. Hey, Now how do we do that? Now that means that we live the righteous life. And if we have to uh, step in the middle from time to time, then... We pray for the wisdom to to know when and how to go about doing it. And then verse 17 about the importance of repentance. He says, For you know that even afterwards, this is Esau, sold his birthright, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he went to daddy. He was rejected, for he found no place for repentance. A real change of mind concerning the God of Abraham and Isaac. Esau didn't worship the God of Abraham and Isaac. No place for a change of mind, though he sought for it, the inheritance, with tears. The importance of a change of mind. So here is a man, Esau, and his grace ran out. His grace ran out. How much grace was offered up to him? Descendant of Abraham and Isaac. Extremely wealthy. And what did he lay aside for a single meal? When people throw away eternity, thinking that this world is what it's all about, they're doing the same thing. They're selling out for a single meal. Now this is quite an exhortation out of Hebrews chapter 12. The importance of training, the importance of discipline... The pray for testing, I mentioned that once up in Bartlesville and the guy prayed for testing and his house caught fire. So I don't want your house to catch fire, so you'll just have testing on that. But if you pray for testing, get ready for it, because God will provide it. But better yet, pray, Lord, as you bring the testing into my life, give me wisdom, know what to do, how to handle it, How to be your witness in this world. Be patient toward people, circumstances, things. Lord, give me the patience to be your witness. Because that's what you want me to do. And he'll honor that. I believe he'll honor that. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this day. For your mercy and grace. Thank you for this chapter. Part of your word. And Father, we, uh, we thank you for the principles that we're taught here about the importance of fixing our eyes upon our Lord and whenever we run into difficult situations thinking about what He went through for us. Because by doing that, we can see discipline in our life as valuable. And Father, seeing this discipline in our life as valuable will also make us useful to be able to minister to other people who are hurting at any given point in time. I pray, Father, that that will be what we do. We will recognize the opportunities. We will use the spiritual resources that you have given to us. And that we may uh, show others the, the right way by living the life as Christ would have us live it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.